Welcome to Scum of the Earth. My name is Mike, and I am the sermonator this evening. We have been in the Gospel of Mark, and I know that some people are always afraid when I do this, but we're going to watch just a portion of the Passion of the Christ again. So if you are paying attention, you'll see that it is the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. We talked about that last week a bit. And the first face you'll see is Peter kind of watching, coming around the corner and watching what's happening, although I don't know how biblically accurate that is, but it's dramatic, at least. And so you'll see Jesus being questioned by the high priests. He answers them. They're talking in either Hebrew or Aramaic, so I didn't ask for subtitles. You won't need those, really. He's being questioned. And you'll see Peter. And just keep a watch on Peter, because we're talking about him tonight, okay? So, and that's where we pick up the Scripture reading today. So I'm going to read from Mark chapter 14, verses 66 through 72. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also are with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. And again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you are talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Now in this little film clip, you saw a flashback to when Jesus and Peter are talking and Jesus informs Peter that he's going to do this. And if you can remember back to exactly a month ago, four weeks ago, February 13th, I talked about Jesus predicting Peter's denial and then Peter's denying that he would be a denier. And at that point, um, there were three points of the sermon. I don't expect you to remember them, so I'll repeat them for you. The first point was that God knows we're going to fail. God knows we will fail. Jesus knew Peter was going to disown him. Number two, God believes in us while we fail. Jesus said, Peter, I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you all. Satan is asked to sift you like sand, but I have prayed for you. And I said that even while we are in the middle of failure, God believes in us. 
and is praying for us that we will not lose our faith, that somehow we'll come out of it with our faith intact. And the third point was that Christ leads us even though we fail. Jesus at that point says to Peter, I'm going to go ahead of you into Galilee. I'm going to go ahead of you like a shepherd goes ahead of his flock to lead you in Galilee. So the three points were, number one, God knows we will fail. Number two, God believes in us even while we are failing. And number three, that Christ leads us even though we fail. And, you know, Peter takes a lot of flack for denying Christ. I want to say, put yourself in a scene like that, and you can understand the sheer terror of the moment. It had been a long night. He had been up for hours and hours, and everything had gone wrong with his world. It came crashing down around his ears. The man that he thought was going to rise to become the ruler of Israel, the righteous Messiah, the one who would put everything right, is all of a sudden being led off to execution, and, and, and now they're coming after him. I mean, it, it, I, I can understand, honestly where you would be so rattled that you would barely know what you're saying. You wouldn't remember what Jesus had told you just hours before because you were so frightened and so terrified and you were starting to compartmentalize what had happened all during the night just so you could survive. And then, boom, the rooster crows for a second time and it all comes back to you. And if you look at the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke is the one that gives the look where Jesus looks at Peter, and that had to be simply devastating for Peter. And then he goes and he weeps. I I, I picture him, this large hulk of a man, this strong, featured man with, with hands that had seen years of toil and were, were, were calloused. A man much like in the film clip we saw, I, I picture him sitting on a rock, his head bent over, crying, his eyes out, his beard all wet, his eyes all red and swollen, snot hanging to the whiskers of his mustache, just draining down, just sobbing and sobbing his great shoulders heaving as he just comes undone. Hence the title of the sermon, Cry Like a Baby, Man. Cry Like a Baby, Man. Now, lest we all give Peter a difficult time, Let me just say, I think there's a worse scenario. The worst scenario is that he shows absolutely no emotion. Don't we get freaked out when people in the news are like that after committing some horrible sin or crime? They just had the trial of a guy in India, a terrorist, 
who didn't regret at all what he had done, even though he had killed many innocent women, children, and men of all ages. As a matter of fact, the only thing he wished is he would have gotten to the place earlier so more people would have died. We're appalled when we read about that couple just last week in the paper. A mother and her boyfriend who beat her three-year-old son because he peed his pants and refused to be toilet-trained in a sufficient amount of time. And so they took turns beating the kid and beating the kid and beating the kid. And while the kid lay crying and literally dying on the floor, they went to the kitchen, had pizza, and watched a movie. And the kid died. We're going, those are monsters, those aren't people. That's, that's horrible. How can they show no regret? And then we almost are amused by the Charlie Sheen deconstruction before us. Here's a guy who you know, has been married multiple times and his kids are taken away from him. He's lost his job. Not only that, but everybody in the crew has lost their jobs because he refuses to admit that he's got a problem or many problems and that he's going to take care of it by himself. And we look at a guy like that and we go, why don't you show some remorse? Be sad. Cry like a baby, man, because you are at the edge of a cliff and you don't even realize it. You're falling over the cliff and you're laughing, bragging about having Adonis DNA and tiger blood. Sorrow is a good thing. Sorrow can be a very, very good thing. And in a society where nobody's supposed to be sad, this message is going to sound weird. It's going to sound counterintuitive. The Bible is actually full of, of phrases that say it's better to be in a house of mourning than in a house of feasting. We're going, really? Seriously? The Bible says that, Mike? Yeah, it does. It does. Read Ecclesiastes sometime. When you get a true picture of, of what wisdom can look like, and it's pretty dark. Jesus said it this way. He said, in Matthew 5, verse 4, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I, I think actually Peter shows us the first two Beatitudes, actually. Poor in spirit and mourning. Peter is at the bottom. There's no place left to go but up. 
Here's a guy who thought, I mean, just hours before, thought he had it all together. He was going to die with Jesus. He was going to be Jesus' number one guy. And he goes from arrogance and pride to brokenness and mourning all in the span of an evening. And I will tell you that at the end of that evening, he's in a safer place than he was at the beginning of that evening. There's something about the gospel that requires us to be broken, to be weak. Because when we are weak, then God's strength can flow through us. His strength is perfected in our weakness. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 11 go like this. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, one who was late to come to Christ as a disciple. And he says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Godly sorrow, good thing. Feeling ashamed might be the best thing that ever happened to you. God save us from those who have no shame. I think as Christians, we should always have not a hall of fame, but a hall of shame somewhere in the back of our minds so that we can say like General Booth who began the Salvation Army as he looked at some of the urchins of the streets of London, he could say, there but for the grace of God go on. There, I would be that guy, that drunk guy, that drugged guy. I would be that hungry guy. I'd be that sick guy. If it wasn't for the grace of God in my life, I would be him. Because General Booth knew that he wasn't a great man. He would have put himself more in the company of the Apostle Peter here at the trial of Jesus, then you would have expected for a man who did such amazing things, started a worldwide movement. So, wouldn't it be weird if you came to your pastor or you came to a trusted friend or mentor and you were saying, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling with this sin. I'm really struggling with this sin. I'm not doing so well. I'm, I'm falling apart. And, and the pastor turned to you and said, hmm, okay, well, have you cried about it? Have you cried about it? Because if you haven't cried about it, maybe, maybe you need to before you come to talk to me about it. Because maybe you still actually like it. There's something beautiful about Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know if you've ever been to an AA meeting. I have. And 
I think every church small group should pattern itself somewhat after an AA meeting because you don't have a bunch of people standing up talking about how great their lives are. You got a bunch of people standing up saying things like, My name is Tom. I'm an alcoholic. And it's been two days since my last drink. My name is Bob. I'm an alcoholic, and it's been 25 years since my last drink. And they talk about the struggle to stay away from the booze. Nobody is there saying, hey, look at me. 25 years sober. Do what I'm doing. You'll be just fine. They come broken. They come needy, acknowledging they need the help of God to do what it is they got to do on a daily basis. I wish more church small groups were like AA meetings. There is a reason that transparency is such a high value at Scum of the Earth Church. I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day. Oh, I was being interviewed by this guy uh, from western Wisconsin, Eau Claire, I think. There was some radio station there. And so he, he asked, he goes, well, Mike, you know, you talk about vulnerability and transparency, uh, honesty being a high value at Scum of the Earth. So give me an example of that. And I said, well... You know, I probably talked about the difficulties in my marriage so much at my church from the pulpit that, honestly, people are kind of tired of hearing about it, and they're asking me to use some kind of new illustration. You know, my wife and I are going, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe people need to know that actually, you know, God has done wonderful things in our marriage, and we're, we're actually loving each other more now than we ever have been. But seriously, people got tired of it, like Mike... You always stop. That's enough. So that was one example I could give him. Part of the problem with the American church today is, is you've got this, this silence about the struggle. No one is talking about the difficulties they have in following, following Jesus. Rather, they're not talking about how they're falling on a daily basis. And when you don't talk about how you fail regularly, then people are under the assumption that you got it all together. And so people, I have to say, especially young people, come to church week after week after week, and no one's talking about the struggle up front. Everything looks just fine, and they feel worse and worse and worse every week. Like, is nobody else struggling like me? Is everybody else following Jesus just fine? Because you know what? I did... Two days ago, I, I couldn't talk about it. And so the silence about the struggle is driving people away from the church in droves because nobody wants to get real about how they screw up following Jesus. And yet, we have a Bible that shows us the Apostle Peter, Jesus' number one guy, totally blowing it. Oh, wait a minute. This is Mark's Gospel. Who was Mark talking to to get his information from? 
We believe it was the Apostle Peter. Now, if you were writing a gospel and Mark was your scribe, Mark was your protege, and he was taking down notes, wouldn't you think about leaving this part out of the story? Because you come off looking like a douchebag. But Peter leaves it in. And Mark leaves it in. And there's a reason they leave it in. It's because sorrow lasts only for a night. Let me read this. Hang on. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. You know, there's a resurrection on the other side of this. Now, I mean, I do this stuff. I mean, let's give Peter some credit here. He had no idea the resurrection was coming, really, at this point. That man can't remember what happened three hours ago. And he goes out and he weeps. It's the proper response to a life that's falling apart. It means, basically, there is nothing he can do to fix it. He has stopped looking to himself for the next move. All the disciples have flunked as well. They're all scattered. There are some things you just can't fix. My, my buddy Jim Emick says, you know, when I, when, I, when, I, when I lose the remote in my living room, I look for it. I keep looking for it. I know if I just try harder, I can find it. He goes, but when I got the phone call from Ohio and I found out that my brother had just died, I, all I could do was weep. I couldn't fix it. I couldn't change it. This sermon is the opposite of one called try harder. I'm not asking you to try harder. I'm asking you to weep and mourn over your sinful state. Because you know what? Jesus says, blessed are you when you mourn. Happy are you, is another translation. Happy are you when you're sad. Because you'll be comforted. Because, because that's where, that's, that's the path to true joy is through the valley of the shadow of death. I think it's because of this that we love Johnny Cash. We love Johnny Cash. Generations love Johnny Cash. My parents' generation loved Johnny Cash. My generation thought he was just a country music guy with a kind of fun story and a weird song, um, you know, a boy named Sue. 
No, it's not true. A lot of folks in my generation thought he was awesome. And then all of a sudden, it was weird. You know, Johnny Cash comes out with a record in his 80s, right? He's doing covers of songs by Nine Inch Nails. And, and people of the next generation are going crazy. This is awesome. Johnny Cash sings Hurt. And he sings it like he lived it. Because he did. And we all understand that when he talks about destroying his life and his kingdom of dirt, and I'm going to hurt you, and you better watch out because I'm a jerk, we're all going, yeah. That's authentic. That's genuine. That's Johnny Cash, and we love him for it. I mean, when was the last time, you know, you got all fired up going to hear some speaker who told you how great it was? We make fun of those guys, you know. Saturday Night Live. Oh man, I can't remember the comic's name. Lives in a in, in a van down by the river. Chris Farley. I mean, we make fun of the motivational speakers because we know it's a bunch of crap. They can't do it. We can't do it. Or you know. And we love people who just are honest about the way things are terrible. And, and really, if there's one point for the sermon tonight is you have permission to mourn and to cry. Cry like a baby, lady. Cry like a baby. Cry like a baby, man. Cry like a baby. And so the question becomes, how do you get there if you realize that 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 sorrow has some goodness to it. And this is why I love the goth culture, because they get this. They really do. There's actually a goth fellowship in, in Washington, D.C. called Those Who Mourn. Those Who Mourn. But how do you get there? I mean, do you have to put on black and you know, listen to industrial music and go to the church after church on Sunday nights? Is that what you got to do? How do you get to godly sorrow? I asked this question to the morning church, which is great, because they didn't realize they were being like a preaching team for me. Uh, so they came up with some, some answers. It was kind of cool. They should be on the board. Get this. Number one, study and meditate on the holiness of God. You know, a lot of folks don't read the Old Testament. It's a God of wrath. It's a God of justice. God who has rules. God who gets ticked off when you break those rules. We don't like that God. We read the New Testament God. Jesus. The Jesus buddy, Right? Jesus is my pal. Jesus is my friend. He winks at me and gives me the thumbs up. But if you read about God in his totality, you understand that there's this standard that you're expected to keep as an image bearer of the high and mighty most holy one. 
And that when you mess up and you hurt yourself and you hurt others and you hurt his creation, guess what? You're in trouble. Now, if you're having a hard time getting in contact with some godly sorrow, if you feel like maybe you're calloused and you're just... Eh, Jesus loves me. Of course he loves me. You know, Jesus loves everybody. Read the Old Testament for a while. Think about it. Read Romans, even. Slowly. Read James. Those are New Testament books. And you'll, you'll understand that there's this character of God, this holiness, and, and, and I think that you do not measure up. And it might help you be a little bit more sad about the way things are in your own life. Another thing the morning church said was, seriously examine your failures by talking with others. One guy said, you know, I can live on my head. And, and I think I'm fine. And it's not until I talk to my sister or I talk to my brother-in-law or I talk to my uh, close friends and I ask them how I'm doing in their eyes do I, uh, do I find out that I'm really a jerk. Want to get in touch? Want to be more like the Apostle Peter? Talk to your friends. Find out what's happening. Have them give you that look. And then stay there and take it. Of course, that presupposes that people know you. You're one of those Christians that nobody knows. Then that'll be a tougher step. So get involved in a small group or something. Remember that you're forgiven after the whole thing's over. I mean... Remember that you're forgiven. I mean, it kind of makes it easier to be transparent about how your life sucks and to be sad about it if you know that when you do, that Jesus still loves you anyway. I mean, that's one of the things that makes the Apostle Peter even greater in my mind. I'm not even sure he knew that. I mean, he knew the character of Christ. He was certainly hoping. But he didn't know there was a resurrection coming for sure because nothing else happened the way he thought it was going to happen. But remember that you're forgiven, and it might be easier. And then this was one that was interesting, and it comes out in a place like Morning Church, because Morning Church is more liturgical. <laughs> and, and one of the guys, uh, staff guy actually, Jeff Warner, said, practice the humility of the Jesus prayer. And the Jesus prayer in Greek goes like this. Kyrie Isu Christe, yet to which means basically, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is one of those prayers that have been prayed over and over again. It's like a, a Christian mantra in a way, except it's not mindless at all. It causes you to think. It causes you to consider your life. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I remember when I first came to to Christ in, in a Protestant setting, and I thought, I don't need the mercy of God. I've been saying Kitty Eleison all my life. And now I've got the grace of God. I've got the unmerited favor of God. He's given me rewards that I haven't even deserved. So why would I worry about the mercy of God? 
You know, but I was 18. I hadn't done a lot of stuff yet. I committed more sins after becoming a Christian than before because I came to Christ young enough, you know? And so now, every day, at some point I'm going, Oh Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, because I am messing up. I'm messing up with my, with my relationship with you either sins of omission or commission. I'm messing up with my relationship with my wife. I'm messing up my relationship with my kids. I'm messing up being a pastor. I'm messing up being a neighbor, being a taxpayer. I mean, just it goes on and on and on. I'm going to have mercy on me. Please do not let me pay the penalty for what I have done and what I have not done. Have mercy on me, a sinner. If you keep, honestly, if this becomes a prayer of yours and you actually say it and think about what you're saying, it will cause humility to come into you. I mean, if you don't say it mindlessly, repetitively, if you think about what you're saying, it actually may be a tool that God could use to put you in touch with what you need to be sorrowful about. Let me just say this to end. The sadder but wiser Christian is the Christian for me. The sadder but wiser Christian is the Christian for me. I actually borrowed that line from Meredith Wilson, music man, but I changed it. The sadder but wiser girl is the girl for me. The sadder but wiser boy is the boy for me. I would rather walk with somebody who's got a spiritual limp and doesn't know their head from their butt than somebody who's got all the answers. I mean, seriously, it's kind of a joke around scum of the earth. You haven't been fired from a job before. You probably won't be hired on staff at scum. It's kind of a prerequisite. I like people. I like to hang around people who know that they're jerks. One of my favorite prayers is one that John Swanger has said, and I'm going to close with that. So please pray with me. Jesus, thanks for hanging out with a bunch of losers like us. Amen.